Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy! Welcome to an episode of The Fellow on Call, the Hemonk podcast. We're coming at you from Rural University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. And on today's episode, we have our pharmacology farm basics capstone episode and we're so excited that in this episode we're going to be joined by a friend of ours renee McAllister. so we're we're super psyched that she was able to join us for recording this episode we're so lucky to have her on the podcast um i've talked to her colleague she's just an outstanding resource uh, in the clinics and beyond yeah, this is just a fantastic episode, and it was a lot of fun doing this. And, you know, I'm really looking forward to having future episodes where we talk about pharmacology and we talk about these concepts with pharmacists. All right, guys. Well, let's not delay any time and let's get to that episode. Hey, Vivek, how you doing? Doing pretty good. You know, I'm just excited that we're going to have our first pharmacist guest on our show. Yes, yes. I'm so, so, so excited to be able to welcome um, our friend, Renee, uh, to the show. Hi, Renee. Hey, guys. How are you? Doing well. How are you doing? Pretty good. Renee, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? I'm sure they're all anxious to hear who this new uh, guest on our show is. Sure. So my name is Renee. I am the GU Oncology Clinical Pharmacy Specialist. Um, so that means I hang out in the GU Oncology team room with the physicians, the mid-levels, the nurses, the fellows like you guys, um, whoever comes through clinic. I am from the Chicago area originally. So I went to UIC for pharmacy school and then made my way to Nashville about six years ago. And I've been in my clinic for about five years. It'll be five years next month. Awesome. Nice, nice. And and Renee, you know, you you escaped the cold, which is a great idea. And now you have two dogs, right? I do. Yes. Yeah. So we have an eight-year-old Belgian Malinois German Shepherd mix named Zena, and then we have a seven-month-old, approximately seventy-five-pound puppy uh, named Charlie, who is currently what I think laying outside the door to the room that I'm in right now because he's very <laughs> sad he's not in here with me. <laughs> Sounds like the perfect lapdog size for sure. Yeah, he thinks he's a lapdog for sure. He's a labradoodle, and I think he's got more lab in him than poodle. That's funny. And Renee, why don't you tell us one fun fact about yourself? One fun fact. So I think one fun fact that I always like is right before I started pharmacy school, I actually cut 11 inches off of my hair and donated it to Locks of Love. That's um, awesome. So I went from having that's, that's really, really, really cool. long hair to super short hair <laughs> right before pharmacy school, but it grows back eventually. Yeah. Oh, that's, nice. that's awesome. That's really nice awesome. Thanks. Um, well, you know, we're, we're so excited to have you here, you know, as you kind of alluded to working in this interdisciplinary kind of environment is super critical to the care of our hematology and oncology patients. And so as a fellow, I mean, I literally ask our pharmacist anything and everything about chemotherapy and all the drugs kind of associated with it. And so, you know, we're, we're so amped to have you here to kind of share with us some of the thought process behind the scenes that you guys go through whenever someone like us comes knocking on your door, asking for advice. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat with you guys tonight. All right. So I'm going to start us off with a, with a case. So 
just we, we prefaced this before with Renee, but just to remind everybody, we had a part one and part two of the basics of pharmacology and cancer. And in this episode, we're really going to focus on that broad cytotoxic chemotherapy category, that traditional chemotherapy category when we talked to Renee. So last week, we talked about a case of a female who was getting neoadjuvant chemotherapy for breast cancer. And we talked about how she was getting dose-dense ACT. And I had just a couple of questions for Renee about this and just really so we can understand this perspective from the pharmacist point of view. One of the things we always talk about is when does a patient need a port? And we referenced this in, in a prior episode that if it's a vesicant, you need a port. And if it's an irritant, it'll be okay to give peripherally. You don't necessarily need a port. Um, and the, the advantages of the port is that it, easier IV access for the patient, less sticks, easier lab draws. So we talked about that already. But Renee, what I want to ask you is, let's say we did have an extravasation event occur. Let's say that we had an irritant, for example. We had an irritant chemotherapy, and there was an extravasation event in a peripheral IV. What resources would you recommend that we use as fellows to go about figuring out how do we manage that complication? So for extravasation, honestly, that's one of the more difficult topics to find information on. So um, for background for the listeners, I um, give a pharmacy emergencies talk to the fellows every year um, for the new fellows. And one of the things I include in my talk is discussion of extravasation and putting those slides together is one of the harder parts of that presentation because there's not a lot of great information. So a lot of institutions will have extravasation management guidelines. That's probably your best bet to go to just because those have been vetted by people who, um, you know, have reviewed the literature and have looked into what's out there um, in terms of management, depending on the medication that extravasates, whether it's an irritant or a vesicant. So um, there's not a really great general source that you can just Google, unfortunately, at least that I've found. Uh, More so you have to kind of go off of your institutional guidelines. Um, Up to date will provide some information probably, So whether you look at, you know, an article on extravasation in general, or whether you look at the specific uh, drug monograph that, you know, depending on whatever drug extravasates, that'll give you a little bit of background information. So from a Googling standpoint, that's probably the easiest way to find information. But for, you know, really good information for your institution, it's probably good to look into the policy that or the, the management tool that each institution has. And I think that's huge for us to know is that, you know, the information is there and there are protocols in place to use. And it's not one of those things that we need to memorize every single drug. If there was some sort of of extravasation occurred, what do we do that we can look it up? And generally speaking, and and I just kind of want to get your opinions on on this, is, is it fair to say that some medications you do cold compresses for a certain amount of time, some medications you do warm compresses, and occasionally there are antidotes. Is that a fair general category of how you deal with this? I think it's a very fair brief overview. So there's going to be certain drug classes like um, Vincas, for example, where you're going to want to use a warm compress. And then there's going to be some drug classes like anthracyclines or taxanes where you're going to want to use a cold compress. And then there's going to be some drugs that maybe they're vesicants and there's no information on whether you use a cold or a warm compress. And then, like you said, there are going to be some drug classes for which there are antidotes available. So things like anthracyclines, for example, where we can use dextrazoxane as an antidote or 
some of our antimicrotubules, like our taxanes, we can use a drug called hyaluronidase. So there are definitely options depending on the drug class that extravasates. And sometimes the drug classes are split. So um, sometimes, you know, for a good example, in terms of compresses for oxaliplatin, you want to use a warm compress, but for cisplatin, you use a cold compress. So it doesn't always follow classes, Interesting. but generally Interesting. it does. That's really good to know. And and one thing I do want to say now is Dan Housrath finally just joined us. He was at some sort of a wine tasting class. Dan, where, where were you? He just showed up randomly. I was just uh, at a wine class um, because that's a thing I do as an attending now. Uh, is I go to classes <laughs> oh, big, on big wine. boy pants, big boy pants. Yeah, yeah. right. And I would like to point really out quick. that on the Zoom call, I'm not the one who's sideways, despite having just come from a wine class. <laughs> yeah, that would be me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining us, Renee. Um, no problem. It was it was cool. It's the wines of Portugal, so I feel very cultured now. So Renee, one of the one of the things that we often run into, especially on the inpatient side, when we need to urgently give somebody chemotherapy, for instance, while they're in the hospital is needing to get these chemotherapy orders in by a certain time. And I was just curious, is there a rhyme or reason behind that? What does that look like once the orders go into the computer? What are you guys doing on the back end that requires these hard cutoff times in order to you know, get the chemotherapy uh, formulations made correctly? Yeah, so there is a rhyme or reason. Most chemo pharmacies, and this is not all-inclusive because this is not true for every institution, but most chemo pharmacies, if an institution has a separate chemo pharmacy, like we do, are going to have a pharmacy that's probably not open 24 hours a day. So in a hospital pharmacy in a central pharmacy where the majority of your IV antibiotics and pressors and things like that are coming from, they will be open 24 seven for the most part, but a chemo pharmacy is not always going to be open 24 seven. And so the main reason for cutoffs in terms of getting the orders in to the computer in you know, a timely fashion is to make sure that the pharmacy is staffed with enough people to make sure all of the behind the scenes work is done. So before a drug gets to a patient, from the time that you guys put in orders to the time that they're signed and they get to the chemo pharmacy, um, typically you're going to have two pharmacists looking at those orders on the front end, verifying the doses are correct, verifying, you know, the height and weight makes sense, verifying renal and hepatic function, looking at all those different hold parameters that we have in our treatment plans, making sure that the, the chemo itself is appropriate. Once that pharma, those two pharmacists have reviewed those chemo orders, then a technician takes over and a technician is going to be the one that actually compounds the medication. So some of those drugs are easy to compound. Some of them are as easy as drawing a drug out of a vial and injecting it into an IV bag. And then some of the drugs are going to be a little bit more difficult to compound. So melphalan is a classic example of that. Melphalan is a really, really hard drug to get into solution. It can take 30 to 60 minutes to get into solution because it's very stubborn. And then the drug itself, once it's in a bag, is only good for an hour. So melphalan is wow. a really good huh. example of a problematic drug. And some of our other drugs, like monoclonal antibodies, for example, can be difficult to get into solution. And because they're proteins, you can't really shake them around too much or you'll denature them. So you have to be very gentle and swirl and things like that. So technicians sometimes take a little bit of time to get drugs into solution, not because they don't know what they're doing, but just because it can be complicated. And then once the tech that. has, yeah, it, it's, there's a lot that goes into the, the behind the scenes. Um, and once the tech is done making it, then there's a third pharmacist that looks at that finished product and verifies that 
you know, the technician put in the correct volume of drug and that it's in the right bag and that the concentration's correct and all of those things. So there's a lot that goes into it more than just one person looking at and making the chemo. So in order to make sure that everything gets done appropriately, we have to make sure the pharmacy is staffed fully. And most places, like I said, aren't going to have 24 hour pharmacies that are open to making chemo. Yeah. I mean, it, it would be one thing if it literally just took one person, but like, you know, having four, like a village on staff 24 seven. Now, now I see how that's a little unreasonable. Not to mention some, you know, a lot of chemo inpatient chemo obviously is typically more urgent than outpatient chemo, but even inpatient chemo is not always emergent, right? Something can probably wait till the next morning. Obviously, if you have a new, you know, APL, maybe they'll get a dose of Atra overnight. If you have a new small cell, maybe you're a little bit more urgent to putting in that chemo, but most inpatient chemo can wait till the next morning. Clearly, Renee has been listening to our podcast, shouting out to that APL episode. Yes, she that, does. That dropped. <laughs> I guess Did you hear that GU pharmacist though. talking about heme stuff? Yeah, yeah. Look at this. Look at this. Um, it gets an important point though, because like with with chemo, you really you'd rather it be safe than fast in in the overwhelming majority of cases. And just like the Swiss cheese model in medicine, right? Like making uh, the Swiss cheese model is the idea that there are a lot of holes in Swiss cheese, but if you have a lot of slices together, it's pretty uncommon that those holes all line up. So the more slices you have, the, the least, the less likely there, there's going to be a hole that this, something can slip through. Oh, that certainly makes me feel a whole lot better for sure, though, because uh, when we're first starting to put all these chemo orders in, it's good to know there's a lot of other people looking at that to make sure that it's correct. I can't tell you how long it took me to put in my first chemo orders and how much I sweat putting that in because I was so nervous I was going to type a number wrong or you know uh, uh, the units incorrectly. So no, it is it is wonderful to hear that there are safety mechanisms in place. And Renee, what, one of the things that I wanted to ask along with, you know, you guys checking the orders and the height and weight, can you tell us a little bit about what ideal body weight means? Yeah, so we can talk about ideal body weight. So ideal body weight is basically looking at a patient from a standpoint of drug dosing. So um, when we think about especially creatinine clearance, um, we talk about how we calculate kidney function with creatinine clearance. And we use ideal body weight or sometimes adjusted body weight going to creatinine clearance in terms of making sure that we have renal function being estimated appropriately. We also use ideal body weight sometimes for dosing of drugs. And so ideal body weight is calculated when we look at a patient and determine, you know, are they male or female? And then looking at their height and determining their ideal body weight for their height. So there's a calculation that basically determines what that patient's, you know, ideal body weight would be. And that's helpful for us in dosing drugs because, you know, as we know with chemotherapy, we dose based on BSA. Um, so if you have somebody who's, you know, more overweight, it sort of helps us determine a little bit better those, those drug doses. That being said, if someone is overweight, the current recommendation is not to cap doses or anything like that. Um, we're supposed to treat patients based on their actual BSA, but that's sort of how we utilize ideal body weight and think about that in terms of our drug dosing. Kind of a similar related, but maybe not so related question I have. Renee, I don't, I had come across the term AUC when I started fellowship and I still don't know if I completely know what that means. Could you just kind of define that term and when is like an ins instance where we use that? 
Yeah. So AUC in the world of oncology is mostly going to be used in the dosing of carboplatin. So AUC basically tells you how long a patient is exposed to a drug. So it takes into account concentration of drug levels in the body and how they degrade over time, essentially. And so we use um, AUC dosing specifically in dosing of carboplatin with the Calvert equation, which takes into account the patient's renal function, and then also basically the amount of exposure you want that patient to receive to that drug. So for example, if, if we are dosing for carboplatin AUC5, that means that we're looking for a certain blood concentration, essentially with that amount of drug that we're giving. Uh, versus if we use an AUC of one, obviously that patient's going to get a lot less exposure to a drug. So carboplatin is really the only place in oncology where you'll see that being used. Outside of oncology, we're starting to use AUC dosing for vancomycin. Um, not all institutions have started that yet and talked about it. We haven't made that move yet. But there are some institutions that use vancomycin um, AUC dosing as a way to better estimate the amount of drug that patients should be exposed to. I think that's so important because I remember in my clinic, I had patients who were getting carboplatin and their creatinine would change between visits, you know, because they had toxicities to treatment and maybe they had an AKI when they came in for their next cycle of chemotherapy. And you have to recalculate the dosing for carboplatin. So it's important not to just say, hey, we calculated it based on things like body surface area using height and weight and things like, you know, or ideal body weight or something. But when you have these variables that change, like creatinine, and you're using that to figure out drug exposure, it's important to recalculate that when you bring these patients back in. And we'll definitely link that to our show notes just so can everybody can see what we're, what we're talking about. I want to take it back to our case now that we've talked about some of the logistics of chemotherapy and some of the basic concepts. So this patient was getting dose-dense ACT, like we said, for her breast cancer. And one of the things that we gave her was GCSF. And before we get into asking Renee questions, Dan, the man, our, our hematology guru, why, why do we give GCSF prophylaxis in patients getting chemotherapy? Yeah. So uh, oftentimes you'll think about the risk that a patient is exposed to with neutropenia. And just as an important reminder, neutropenic fever is not just when, you know, someone is out you know, going to a concert when they're neutropenic and picking up COVID or picking up some other infectious disease from another person, the threat can really come from within. So uh, your gut flora on a microscopic level can just translocate through the intestinal wall uh, on a really tiny scale. And for you and me who have a normal neutrophil count, that's not a big deal. Our neutrophils like jump right on that and and knock it out. But um, if someone's ANC is down, you know, below 500, below 300, critically neutropenic, that can be a life-threatening event and uh, and people can get bacteremic gram-negative bacteria really quickly. So if we're thinking about a patient who's expected to be neutropenic because of their chemotherapy regimen for more than you know, 10, 12 days, we uh, sometimes those regimens will have basically an exogenous version of the growth factor that tells our body to produce more granulocytes. We'll have that built in so that we can try and bolster their production of neutrophils and um, just minimize that window that they're in that critical neutropenia. You know, a lot of times we don't think about it as something we'll do to treat somebody who's had who's having neutropenic fever, but it just as a prophylactic will oftentimes that'll be built into certain chemotherapy regimens. 
biggest thing is it's to prevent febrile neutropenia. And Renee, how do you guys determine and how should we determine how can what's the best resource we can use to know whether we should be using GCSF prophylaxis? So I think the NCCN guidelines are probably the best bet for you in terms of starting that decision making. So the NCCN guidelines, I think it's for um I think it's the growth factor guideline itself, the supportive care growth factor guideline has recommendations in terms of febrile neutropenia risk. So in general, if someone's risk of febrile neutropenia with whichever regimen they're receiving is greater than 20%, they buy themselves GCSF as primary prophylaxis. So we're giving that upfront, starting with cycle one to make sure that we prevent febrile neutropenia to the best of our abilities. The guidelines also recommend considering adding GCSF to a chemo regimen up front if the febrile neutropenia risk is 10 to 20%, but they've got certain high-risk features. So like they've received prior chemo, they've received prior radiation, maybe they've got bone marrow involvement of their cancer, their older patients, et cetera. So there are some recommendations in terms of patients that you know don't quite meet that 10 to 20% risk. I think the other resource that's really good is looking at the paper that got, you know, the regimen, you know, approved for whatever disease state it's approved for, because oftentimes they'll either report one of two things or sometimes both. They'll report whether or not they gave GCSF up front as primary prophylaxis, or if maybe it was allowed to be added on as secondary prophylaxis, and they'll usually report the fibronegopenia risk. And so you can kind of use those tools to make your decision on whether or not a patient is going to need GCSF up front. And that's such an important point. Can't emphasize enough that you, you can you can't really go get or you can't do better than going back to the the actual paper off of which uh, regimen was approved. That's the protocol that got approved. That's how it was given. Um, that's really where all the safety data is going to be documented and and uh, and really reliable. And Renee, in regards to let's say you know. I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but perhaps you put somebody on a regimen that typically we don't give GCS support with. This is their first cycle. Unfortunately, they do develop some sort of neutropenic fever as a side effect of being on that agent or that or that protocol. Is it appropriate to consider starting somebody on GCSF with like cycle two, for instance, to prevent that from happening again in the future, even if it's not something that we traditionally do with whatever regimen that may be. Absolutely. And I think in most instances, we will do exactly that. So a great example in my world in GU oncology is a regimen like CISGEM for bladder cancer, right? We give it neoadjuvantly. Sometimes we give it in the metastatic setting. We don't require GCSF up front. The fibronutropenia risk is not greater than 20%. And it's probably honestly not even greater than 10%, though I don't know the number exactly. But it's not unusual for us to have patients that develop fibronychopenia. And so in those patients, that's the first thing that we'll do, or the first thing that I do oftentimes is the pharmacist on the team is make sure that I've already got that new LASTA or figure out what form of GCSF we're going to utilize for that next cycle. Guys, I was curious, there's a lot of different types of GCSF support I've seen. So I've seen like Philgastrum or, or Neupogen. I've seen this OBI thing that inevitably someone calls about every single time I'm on call. I was just curious if you guys could maybe comment on the different types and and how we decide which one we use. Yeah, this is something that confused me for an extremely long time, and it probably shouldn't have. But as people know who listen to this show, everything confuses me. So Phil Grastem is 
Mutagen is another name. And, you know, again, we don't support any brands or anything like that, but you will hear that name. You'll hear maybe Nupagen, you'll hear maybe Granix. And that's why we're including that is because it's, these are things that you might hear. And that is something that requires daily dosing. So it's a short acting GCSF that requires daily dosing. So the patient has to give themselves shots daily. And at the Rulo University Medical Center Veterans Hospital, we have to prescribe that formulation because the other formulation is a little bit more expensive. And that other formulation is, one of them is pegylated filgrastin. And the pegylated version lasts a long time. So another name for it, you might hear Nulasta. Nulasta lasts a long time. And the idea behind that is, when you give that formulation, you don't have to give daily dosing. It's a one-time shot and it, and it covers you. It, it lasts for about 12 days, 10 to 12 days. So you don't have to give daily dosing of these GCSF shots like you would with the other formulation. And then lastly, you have this thing called an OBI, which is an on-body injector. So on-site body injector, where it's basically this device that you put on the arm and it will automatically deliver pegylated filgrastim the 24 hours or actually it's about 26 hours after chemotherapy. So which is the timing that you want to give these things because you want to give the chemo and you don't want to stimulate the granulocytes and, and have them have them demarginate and kill all of your white blood cells by giving them GCSF. You want to wait until there's a certain amount of time after chemotherapy before you give these growth factors. And so this OBI does it automatically where it will automatically inject into the patient 26 hours after it's placed onto them. So it'll be after chemotherapy. And the big thing here is you might get called in the middle of the night of, hey, my OBI is beeping or the OBI didn't work. And honestly, my best recommendation to you as a fellow is just Google it. And the manuals are fantastic. Uh, they, they really tell you what to do in those situations. So when in doubt, obviously call for help. But if you want to just know for your own information or before you start your call, or if you're just wondering, just Google the manuals and look at some YouTube videos. And, it, and also go with the nurses and the pharmacists as they put them on the patients. So you can see what it looks like and what it actually is. And you know those are the biggest things that I would say. So those are the different formulations. Remember that you always give these growth factors a day after chemotherapy, not before that. Yeah, that's super important. And the other thing that's uh, important to mention here is that the scale of these doses between the short-acting version, just filgrastim, and the peg filgrastim or nulasta version, it's it's orders of magnitude. So you're you're usually given, I think it's something like five micrograms per kilogram. It's usually in the range of like 480 micrograms per day per shot of the short-acting form, but the pegylated form is a fixed dose of six milligrams. So 6,000 micrograms. And, you know, we like to think that these uh, pegylated formulations, of these drugs, when they're given um, as a deep shot are going to be sort of evenly dosed and evenly distributed. But man, I've had some patients that'll show up in the ER, maybe the day after a couple of days after they get one of these hefty doses of a pegylated filgrastin product and uh, their white counts are through the roof. So it's not a perfectly even distribution. They do kind of get walloped with this, uh, with these agents right up front, but ultimately it still does last for a long time. It, it kind of slowly leaks out into the body after that. And they are given that support for a full 10 to 12 days. And I'm glad that we heard about an example of, of something like CisGem where you wouldn't give neutropenic GCSF prof prophylaxis but then if they develop febrile neutropenia, it's reasonable to add on for subsequent cycles. 
So let's go back to this case with this patient. She had dose-dense ACT and having a dose-dense regimen with an anthracycline and cyclophosphamide, it's guaranteed that they need GCSF prophylaxis. So she got her GCSF prophylaxis. And the other thing that with this patient is that she was prescribed dexamethasone and olanzapine after chemotherapy on days two to four. So I wanted to ask you, how do we determine which patients need extra anti-emetic prophylaxis? So these were used to prevent nausea. So how do you approach knowing when to give patients prophylaxis for nausea scheduled after chemotherapy? And then another question is, we, we see the, the medication Aprepitant often given before chemotherapy in, in many cases. Which regimens do you think about giving a prepotent for? And which regimens can you just give, let's say, Zofran or just Zofran and some steroids? So again, I think that's a great question. And I again think that the NCCM guidelines for the fellows are going to be the easiest way to sort of start figuring that information out. So any drug that or regimen that causes emesis at a rate of greater than 90%, if the patient doesn't receive prophylactic antiemetics, is considered a high emetic risk. So these patients are going to be patients receiving something like distance ACT, like you just mentioned, anything cisplatin-based is going to be highly emetogenic. And these patients who are receiving highly emetogenic chemotherapy should be receiving at least a three-drug, if not a four-drug regimen as their anti-emesis. So typically that involves a 5-HT3 drug like Zofran you mentioned. Oftentimes it'll include dexamethasone, Typically, it'll include olanzapine and then also aprepitant. So aprepitant in particular is really useful for these highly emetogenic regimens. Moderate emetic risk is going to be anything that causes emesis, I believe, in 30 to 90% of patients. And this is a little bit more of a gray zone, I think, in terms of picking out an anti-emetic regimen. Typically, you're going to want at least two drugs. So oftentimes, you're going to want probably dexamethasone and a 5-HT3 like Zofran. But this is kind of sometimes the, the ground where people will do a three-drug regimen. Maybe it's not necessarily guideline recommended, but we'll do a three-drug regimen and add a prepotent into the mix just to prevent you know, nausea where possible. And then something that's going to be a lower emetic risk or minimal emetic risk is going to be anything less than 30% emesis rate. And those patients can get away very easily with just a one-drug Zofran before their chemotherapy. Um, so a good example of that is like gemcitabine. Gemcitabine really doesn't cause nausea. We give them a dose of Zofran beforehand, probably to make ourselves feel better more than anything. Um, but it really isn't going to cause nausea for patients typically. And is it fair to say that the steroids and olanzapine post-chemotherapy is generally reserved for that high hematogenic risk category? And my other question is, let's say somebody did have bad issues with nausea and vomiting after cycle one of chemo. At cycle two, do you then consider scheduling olanzapine and steroids on days two to four? Yeah. So typically these high emetic risk patients are going to receive um, probably dexamethasone and olanzapine for three days after chemo. In patients who maybe receive a two drug regimen up front because their chemotherapy regimen is not highly emetogenic, but like you mentioned, they have horrible nausea you know, or, you know, a lot of vomiting with that first cycle, or maybe even their second cycle, the first thing that we should always be thinking about is how can we maximize their anti-emetic, you know, drug list. And the next easiest step is to add another drug. So if you gave them two drugs the first time, give them a third. If you gave them three drugs the first time, give them a fourth. 
Um, typically, you're going to start with steroids and Zofran or another 5-HT3 antagonist up front. Oftentimes, the next you know, third drug would be something like a prepotent and olanzapine typically is something that we utilize in our patients who have that highly metagenic chemotherapy. But sometimes patients, you know, have terribly controlled diabetes, and maybe you want a steroid sparing regimen. And so you don't choose something with dexamethasone in it. Or maybe they're on a lot of other, you know, antidepressants and things like that. And you don't want to include olanzapine in the mix for fear of, you know, over sedation or drug interactions, things like that. There's a lot of different reasons why we mix and match things. But typically, like you said, I think it's a fair point to say, if someone got two drugs, give them three. If they're having nausea issues, they got three, give them four. I think all of this is such a good reminder that this is not a one size fits all, right? Like we just talked about in all these different instances where, you know, we adjust the medication dosages for each person. We adjust the use of Nuprogen sometimes for, for different people. We adjust the, the supportive medications. And so I think for us, it's always important to remember, remember to be that internist first before we uh, decide just to put our chemo hats on and, and put those orders into the computer. And I think the fact that we got to, you know, going back to the primary source and like that'll have the safety data in it is a huge thing. Cause, yeah. um, I, that's something I totally didn't think about when I was starting out. It's just like, yeah. Oh yeah, that's right. This was studied. And now I do it all the time. Like, <laughs> I'm like, I need to actually look at what side effects people got, even if it was grade two or like, you know, like oh, they're I, in a table, table two. Has it yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's always there. <laughs> always look at that table. Renee, I just want to thank you again for facilitating a fantastic discussion. And we're, we're so glad to have colleagues like you out there that help fellows like us and attendings, et cetera, just trying to navigate this world of, of chemotherapy and all the things associated with, with taking care of our patients. So, so thanks for all that you do. Yeah. Thanks for having me today. This is fun. And, you know, we need to hire you at Rulo University Medical Center now that Dan put his big kid pants on and he's an attending, you know. Dan, you got to you got to recruit her over. I'll I'll do yeah, what I can. I mean, uh, she's got a pretty good gig going right now, but we'll see what we can swing. Yeah, if you need a pharmacist, let me know. <laughs> we will. <laughs> <laughs> Renee, do you have any final thoughts or any uh, lasting comments that you want to make for our listeners before we wrap up? Oh, that could also open a can of worms. Um, no, I don't think so. Other than I think. Um, I think just remembering that the pharmacist is oftentimes a really good source of information. I know a lot of institutions don't have pharmacists, you know, embedded within clinics and things like that, but the pharmacists that are checking your chemo or verifying your chemo and making it are still a really good source of information and a really good source of figuring out how to, you know, handle some of these things that we talked about today. That is by far the most important thing. I would be totally, totally lost without our pharmacists. Um, I just wouldn't know how to do anything. So very, very, very important. 100%. 100% agree as well. Guys, do you have any other final thoughts? Any uh, final remarks you want to make? Dan, I'm just super happy you could join us. Yeah. Oh, I will. I'll try (laughs) independent of wine classes. Um, But I'm super happy that, uh, that Renee, you were able to join us. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you guys. All right. Well, I think that wraps up another great episode of the fellow on call until next time. We'll see you all later. See you later. Peace. Bye.